0: Chapter 34 Urza and Mishra. Urza was alone at his camp. The aides and apprentices
1: had fled or rushed elsewhere as reinforcements had been killed in combat. Below him, across the haze filled valley, was a sea of mechanized ruin. Most of the smaller automatons had been smashed now, and only the great behemoths were thundering against each other. An oily smoke covered most of the land, and he could not see the opposite side of the valley any longer. Urza removed his glasses and pinched the bridge of his nose. So much effort, he thought, for so little result. Taunus was out there, he knew. But Taunus had fought before, and always returned home. Harbin was at least safe from this battle, en route back to Penregan, Urza realized he should leave now. Should pull back. But pull back to what? The forts had been emptied to bring troops to this battle. There was nothing left in the Combined Kingdom's descent, even if the boatyards were still functional. There was nothing left of the land with which to build anew. Urza looked out over the veil, and shook his head. He thought of Lorraine's notes, and he thought of Harbin. The boy had seen what the natives of the land could do, and had come to believe that there was more powerful forces than just artifice and machinery. Perhaps he was right, but it was too late for that. There was a movement to Urza's right, and he turned, expecting to see Tano stepping out of the gathering smoke. Instead, it was another figure, this one muscular and young, and dressed in the robes of the desert. Hello, brother, said Misha. Urza blinked. Misha looked unchanged from when they last met face-to-face at Krug. Indeed, if anything, he looked younger, stronger, and more confident. Instinctively, Urza's hand went down to his mitestone, hanging from around his neck. You're looking unwell, said Misha, a cold smile on his face. Your machines have sucked the life out of you. That is your error. One of many. Misha stepped forward, and Urza's stone began to glow. The pouch around Misha's neck began to shine in response. Misha opened it with his left hand and pulled a fist-side rock from it. Two of a kind,' said the younger brother. "'How long have we fought? And for what, brother? For trinkets such as these?' He pulled out the ankh with his other hand. "'For rulerships of nations and people?' "'I just wanted to learn,' said Urza softly. "'I just wanted to build my devices.' Misha took another step forward. And Urza tried to push the younger brother back, forcing his will through the stone as he had at Krug, as he had back in Tokasia's camp at the beginning of his life. He was less effective this time. Misha took another step forward, slower this time, and his smile was fixed and brittle. You let yourself grow old, and your light is dimming, he said. Shall we talk one last time, or must I slay you now? You still want my stone, said Urza, but it was exhausting to speak. He felt age resting on his shoulders, and the stone was a great weight around his neck. Misha took another step, and both brothers were bathed in the light now, the multicolored light from their own stones. The two men were only a foot apart. You think this is only about a mere fractured gem? You think this is where power is? Misha said, and there was effort in his smile. You still covet my stone, brother? Here, take it. Misha lashed out with the stone grip tightly in his hand. Urza dodged to one side, but knew as he dodged, Misha's attack was merely a feint. The Ankh in Misha's other hand came up suddenly, and Urza twisted and stumbled backward, trying to get out of the way of the blade. The light of his stone died as the razor sharp edge of the Ankh stretched across his forehead. Urza's face exploded in pain as he fell back. Misha laughed, and Urza reached up to his face. The Ankh had carved a deep furrow across his forehead, which already welled with blood. The thick, sticky fluid, ran down the sides of Urza's face and stained his glasses a sanguine hue. You never realized true power, brother, taunted Mishra. You never had a fight for your life. You were always safe in your world of devices and calculations. Now you see you went down the wrong path. You will die old and alone. And I will take your lands and peoples and inventions and bend them to my will. Misha leaned forward to deliver a killing blow with his Ankh. Urza felt anger, hot and fresh. And with that anger came action. Were he thinking rationally, he might have tried to retreat, to talk, to plan another assault at a later day. But he was in pain, and anger welled from that pain. He moved instinctively and impulsively. He dropped the defenses he had erected around him, defenses that had blossomed when the two fought. Instead, he used the energy of the stone to launch a direct assault against his brother. He used the might as a focus for his assault, but poured into his anger at Mishra. He poured all of his rage and all of his other emotions as well. How he loved his brother, and how he hated him. How their war had wrecked their lives, and their world. All this, he poured through the stone in one blast of energy. As he did so, he felt something give within him. It was as when a muscle suddenly pulled from strain, or a gear changed within a device. Suddenly, the mental walls around him fell away, and he realized his brother had been right. He never realized true power, until now. Urza knew the power came from within him, not from any device or crystal. He fed that power through the stone and into a single bolt against his brother. Mishra's chest exploded in a ball of crimson fire and the younger man screamed and fell. The fire spread through his robes and he flailed his arms as the flames engulfed him. His body blazed brightly for a moment. Then he was gone, fleeing back into the smoke that filled the valley. Urza watched him flee and now realized what had made Misha so powerful. For Misha's robes had burned in Urza's assault and with the robes, the flesh beneath them, had peeled away from the heat. Beneath the flesh had been metal. Urza had seen it for only a moment, but that was enough. There were plates where Mitra's ribs should have been, and pulleys and coiled knots of steel rope where his muscles should have operated. His brother had been consumed by his own machines. He had become one himself. Urza felt the effects of his own assault. Something had changed within him, and once the door was open, it could not be closed. He could sense the world around him by more than sight and feeling. He could feel the power within himself, and the power within the land that surrounded him. The land was in pain. No, not just an Argoth, but an all He and his brother had plundered the earth for its riches, and damaged it beyond repair. Now it cried out to him, in a maddening chorus, cry for a spite, crying for release. There was another flicker of motion to his left, and he raised the mightstone against a new assault. But this time, it was Taunos, staggering out of the smoky fog, coughing and clutching a backpack. The student looked ancient as he staggered
0: forward. Urza, said the former apprentice, the machines no longer obey. Urza looked over the battlefield and saw it with new eyes. Where
1: before there was the confusion, he now saw another puppeteer pulling the strings, pulling the strings of the artifact creatures, the strings of his brother, his own strings. There was a demon, a creature from Phyrexia, continued Tanos. He ambushed me in Ashnod. Ashnot said I should bring you this. He pulled a bowl shaped Silex from the pack. Urza, are you listening? Urza looked at the bowl and heard the cries of the land around them. I hear, he
0: said. More than you realize now. I hear. We should retreat, said Tanos. Get away from here, if your brother finds us.
1: My brother has been here once, said Urza, and he'll be coming back. He took the bowl from Tanos's hands and as he touched the silex, the cries of the land became more intense in his ears. They rose in a deafening cacophony of pain that only he could hear. Ashad says you're supposed to fill it with memories of the land, said Taunos. The scholar's mouth worked a moment, then he added, I don't know what that means. I know, said Urza, and he did know. The moment he took the bowl from Taunos, he knew what its purpose was and how he was to use it. The understanding flowed through him like an electric jolt. We should go, said Tanos. No, said Urza softly. Urza, you're hurt, began Tanos, But Urza cut him off. No, he repeated. It ends here, for me and for him. For a moment, his eyes focused on Tanos, and Urza said, You must go and find a safe place of refuge. Find some place to take cover. Urza, I'm not- Do not argue, thundered Urza. Find the deepest cave, the farthest tree, the strongest fortification. Find anything to protect yourself, and do it now. Taunos was gone, and Urza was alone on the hillside, only for a moment. There was a clanking and clattering to his right, down toward the valley. The noise grew louder by the moment. Misha was returning, and he had brought him a dragon engine with him. The mist parted as the great machine rumbled up the hill toward the wounded scholar, and Urza mentally corrected himself. Mishra has brought the Dragon Engine as a part of himself. Most of his flesh had burned away from his brother's form, leaving only a maze of coiled wire and black cables beneath, oozing fluid. The cables had reached out from within his body and merged with those of the Dragon Engine. This one had been the one at Coralinda, and similar cables had extruded from it to join with Mishra. Machine and man had become one entity. Mishra's face was largely intact, save for a long, burned scar along one side. The tatters of flesh flapped against the metal beneath as his mechanical jaw opened and closed, bellowing threats. There was a dripping redness along that side that might have been blood. Urza saw the abomination that was his brother and knew what must be done. He spoke a word and pulled the energies of the land to him. In an instant, the hillside at his feet slid away, crashing toward the Mishra engine. The man machine was caught by the cascading earth and dragged backward down toward the valley floor. It would not stop his hate filled brother. Urza realized, but it would slow him down, and that was enough. Urza sat cross legged with the bowl in his lap. The runes within the bowl spiraled toward the center, but he did not need to read them. Whatever force now coursed through his veins allowed him comprehension, allowed him to commune with the artifacts as he heard the cries of the land. Blood from the gushing wound on his forehead dribbled into the bowl and filled the carved rooms with crimson. Urza summoned his memories, the memories of his life and his studies, and willed them into the bowl. He thought of Argive and of Corliss. He thought of his towers, and workshops, and of the ornery and crew. He thought of lands he had flown over, and fought over. He thought of the Kerr Ridges, and the caverns of Koilos. And he thought of a small encampment, now forgotten by most living men, and buried by sand, where students of an old woman dug for artifacts of an ancient and forgotten people, when two brothers learned about the Thran. The Mishra machine had recovered from the avalanche, and was now charging up the hill, its dragon head screaming. Erza looked up and saw his brother's face, half torn from the metallic skull beneath, and wept for him. The artificer's tears joined the blood and memories in the bowl, and he felt the power well up around him. The power filled him now, flowing to him from all the land and all the memories of the things that he had done. His regret and pride and anger and solitude all poured into the bowl, filling it to the brim, filling it to the bursting point, and beyond. The Mishra machine had attained the hilltop now. And its serpent head loomed high above him. Misha was grinning, the smile half flesh and half steel. It was the grin of a man triumphant. Misha was screaming something, but Urza no longer heard his voice. All he heard was the land crying for release, and Urza released the power. A flash at the base of the bowl spread outward and upward, a new sun brought to the earth and igniting everything it touched. Urza felt the flash for a moment and smiled as it washed over him. His last sight was of his brother, melted to the machine as both were caught in the blast. The smile on his brother's face turned into a twisted parody as the systems of his body failed. Then the Misha Dragon reduced to its smallest particles, and those particles
0: were caught by the force of the explosion Urza had called into being. They were blown far, far away, and Urza was gone as well. Argoth died at last. Those survivors in the land only had a moment to react
1: to the great flash of light on the horizon, when suddenly it was on top of them. The surviving trees ignited where they stood, blown down by the wind, their stumps uprooted by the undulating earth as the ground slid beneath the sea, and new earth shot up from the force of the explosion.
0: Gaia screamed as the circle of destruction widened. The men on Harbin's ship, who had been looking south, were blinded
1: by the light, their eyes reduced to pools of blood from the intensity. The masts and sails of the ship were set afire by the heat. The ship was suddenly rising, as the sea itself became a mountain, and carried the boat with it. The ship rose upward, and Harbin clung to the tattered remains of the rigging, screaming his father's name. All at once, the boat and the man were atop the great soil of the ocean, and Harbin could see, far to the south, the reddish glow of the sky, as Argoth burned. He could see the other swells, each larger than the one that
0: had just overtaken them, advancing like relentless armies. His ship was cast down again into the ocean. Gwenna felt the ground tremble beneath her and heard the cry of Gaia as the land died. They were fighting
1: Corlissians along the coast, and many of the warriors on both sides now cast down their weapons and began to weep. The war was over, and there were to be no victors. Gwenna noticed the sea was gone, leaving only broad patches of mud and rock. She realized what that meant. She shouted for her warriors to flee to the hills inland and broke into a loping run. She did not see which ones obeyed her. She was halfway up the nearest hill, when the first great waves,
0: each the size of a small mountain, broke against the coastline, smashing everything in their path. In Penrigan, Kayla set down her pen at the sound of distant thunder, but the thunder did not diminish, but instead
1: became louder and was soon accompanied by the rushing of winds. The ground shook beneath her, and in another room, there was the sound of dishes clattering to the floor. The room was rocked, and the furniture slid against the far wall and was smashed. To the south, there was a great reddish glow, as if all of southern Argive had caught fire. The door flew open, and Jarsil, Harbin's eldest, came in, crying and clutching one of his father's old toys, a mechanical bird that Taunus had made for him. Kayla hugged the child and whispered soft words to him, as outside the house, men screamed and buildings
0: toppled. A single tear ran down the side of her face as she comforted her grandchild. In the caverns of Koilos, the air wrinkled and pursed, and there was the smell of burning oil as
1: Gix returned to his lair. He had been damaged, and his movements left greasy footprints and splatters of oil. There was human blood on him as well, on his chest, his talons, and his face, but he had no time to consider his appearance. He worked quickly, one part of his mind calculating how long it would take for the blast wave to reach him, another wondering if the mountain itself would be sufficient protection, while a third part ready the Thran machine. A loose pile of power crystals was placed on the holder that he had hoped would once again carry the united weak stone and might stone, and his bloodstained hands moved over the glyphs with a hurried grace. The air began to swirl and form its gateway, but it was not yet fully formed when the earth shook beneath his feet. The front of the blastway was surging up the canyon outside. Gix slipped up the steps to the dais and looked around. Already, parts of the ceiling were beginning to cave in, and the machines were sparking and going dead. Gix cursed and dived through the small portal, feet first. As he dived, the portal winked shut around him. There was a scream within the vault, and then nothing, save for a
0: demon's arm, severed at the elbow, clenching and unclenching at something it could not attain, lying on the floor of the shattered room. Near the foot of the Ronum Glacier, Feldon and Lorraine watched as a great
1: dust storm swallowed the foothills far below them the Saiyan had been drawn from the desert, hundreds of miles away, and now flayed everything in the lowlands. Even at their height, a hot, dust-laden wind swept over them, and Loran pulled her cloak tight with her left arm. Beneath the cloak, her right arm was a twisted and mangled remnant. Felden surveyed the terrain below them, as one valley after another disappeared beneath the blast, leaving only a churned fog of dust and despair that was already trying to climb their mountain. The lower peaks were already vanishing beneath
0: the assault. Well. He said at it last. It's over. Lorraine said, Good. And there was silence in Teresier.